in-depth journalism is more important than ever in a complicated, chaotic time. That's why we listen to NPR's Throughline. This is a podcast that appeals to us on so many levels. As history buffs, we love their historical contextualization of important ongoing issues. As storytellers, we love the engaging way they approach and often humanize complicated tales. As news consumers who want to stay informed, we love the way they give the story behind the big stories of the day. We try to take a similar approach on the murder sheet, and we feel confident that our listeners would enjoy giving NPR's Throughline a try. We've been going through their entire backlog recently, listening to them as we drive to source meetings. One favorite of mine was their episode about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Throughline's coverage didn't disappoint, delving in depth into one of history's worst U.S. presidents. They also did an episode which is rather pertinent to our work, and that was the one they did about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and how they've always been part of America's DNA. That's something I think about quite a lot, given the creep of misinformation and manipulation in online true crime spaces. NPR's Throughline is a source we trust. They're all about nuance and depth and unpacking the messiness behind outwardly simple stories. Go back in time. Learn something new. Emerge more knowledgeable about today's headlines. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder. If you haven't done so already, please go back and listen to our last three episodes to catch up on our look at the 2017 murders at Naughty Fish and Chicken in the South Shore neighborhood of Chicago. As a refresher, on the night before the killings at the restaurant, a man named Jerry Jacobs was gunned down in the South Shore. The next afternoon, a gunman killed four young men at the Nadia restaurant. Hours later, someone murdered a couple in their car in an area not far from the earlier murders. The police quickly arrested Jerry Jacobs' 19-year-old son, Maurice Harris, claiming that he had killed the four men at the restaurant in retaliation for the death of his father. And then they went to the media outlining their seemingly strong case against Maurice for the murders. Overnight, it seemed as if all of Chicago was convinced of his guilt. His family and friends remained in his corner, though. And so did Ian Barney, the attorney who represented Maurice in his civil suit against the Chicago Police Department. Barney is a relatively young man, but he has more legal experience than one might expect. Here's Ian. I don't know if people would consider me a younger attorney or not a younger attorney or what I've been practicing for about 10 years now. But, you know, I started working for a criminal defense lawyer back when I was 19 years old. And he's someone who uh, is very well respected for good reason. He's, you know, one of the best lawyers I think anyone could ever meet. And he 
you know, this was when I was in college, so I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything. Um, and uh, he kind of let me follow him around and let me sit on a meet and let me in on case strategy. And I learned a lot uh, from him doing that. Uh, and he was a really, really great guy, really great mentor. And that's kind of how I got my introduction to criminal uh, criminal law. And then after college, I went to law school. And in law school, I worked at the state's attorney's office. Um, and as a, what they call, I think, an extern, a volunteer extern. But the state's attorney is really good about getting law students really practical experience, writing motions, doing research. Um, I actually got something called my 7-Eleven license, which is in Illinois. You Under Illinois Supreme Court Rule 7-Eleven, um, you can be certified to basically um, try cases in, in court, criminal cases in court under the supervision of of another lawyer, of a, an older lawyer. And so at the state attorney's office, I had the opportunity to do that. Um, I worked in the narcotics division over there with a bunch of other really solid, really good lawyers. And then after law school, I immediately started working for another lawyer who uh, is extremely well-respected and is also a phenomenal lawyer. And, you know, he kind of taught me, um, taught me a whole bunch from there. And then I started my own firm and I continued to do uh, criminal work, and including doing a lot of appellate work which um, I had done before, but not in the volume that I did after when I started my own firm. And uh, that, that's a really great experience for um, getting into the weeds on criminal law and learning these topics kind of from top to bottom. So um, I was, I'm probably, you know, if you talk to older lawyers, they would say I'm definitely on the younger side, but um, I've had, I think, a unique experience uh, in that I've been exposed to this field of law since I was, <clears throat> uh, you know, basically a, before I was even a sophomore in college. So I think there's, you know, I have a decent amount of experience. But could an attorney, even one with Barney's expertise, hope to save Maurice from a lifetime behind bars? My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the murder sheet. And this is In the Shadow of Nadia, The Lawyer.
Ian Barney maintains that some of the most important work a lawyer does takes place outside of the courtroom. Um, I'm a big believer in investigations. I work with some really great investigators, and I'm a big believer in that uh, lawyers should take um, a strong hand in, in conducting the investigation, meaning that you should personally be involved, um, whether it be interviewing witnesses with your investigator or trying to chase down leads yourself um, or, you know, just working the case up and, and trying to plot out every avenue of investigation and running them all down, uh, even if they're not, you know, they're unlikely to be fruitful. I'm a big believer in that. Um, you know, I represent quite a few people in the post-conviction um, phase of, of criminal cases, and those oftentimes uh, involve actual innocence claims. And, um, you know, if you want to pursue or prove your own innocence, um, you've got to you've got to really investigate the case. And so that's, you know, that's something that I do on behalf of my clients. And it's, you know, I just, I'm a big believer that, that the truth is out there. Um, you've just got to find it. You've got to find it in the right way. And sometimes it's just a matter of being dogged. And that's not to say that I was dogged or that, you know, I'm, I'm some great investigator. Like I said, I have, I work with investigators who are great at talking to witnesses and kind of putting them at ease and getting them to tell their story. Um, and I just think you got to run down every lead in every case. I'm a, I'm a really big believer in that. But with experience, we often learn that things that are technically true may not work out so well in actual practice. You know, when I kind of came up and learned about criminal defense, the mantra was always uh, the state has to prove uh, your client guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And you see, if you read a lot of transcripts of cases, you see that that's oftentimes the primary defense at trial. You go to trial and the defense attorney tries to poke holes in the state's case. And their argument to the jury is, look, this guy's not credible. That lady's not credible. Well, what they saw, they couldn't have seen it. They were behind a tree or whatever the case is. This case can't be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. And I just um, have seen people lose cases uh, with that argument so many times that I, I, I don't believe that, um, that that's an argument that that jurors is persuasive to jurors. I don't think they understand what that means, proof beyond a reasonable doubt versus some other type of proof. Uh, so I'm a big believer that um, if you can, you've got to prove your innocence. Even though the law doesn't say you have to prove your innocence, even though the law says the state has to prove your client guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, I'm a big believer that, that you should, if you can, you should try to Perhaps the easiest way to convince a jury that your client is innocent is to argue that someone else committed the crime. Uh, I was curious, in the course of your investigation, did you develop uh, any other suspects? Um, yeah, absolutely. We, you know, and that wasn't necessarily a goal of ours. When you go into these cases, Ultimately, it's the state's burden to prove your client guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And, um, you know, your job as an advocate for your client is to try to find ways um, to kind of negate that. You're not trying to prove the case that somebody else did it. You're just trying to, you know, undercut proof beyond a reasonable doubt. In this case, you know, we, we, we obviously started with that premise, but... We started to feel like we could prove Morris's innocence and 
as we got further down that road, um, you know, we we kind of uh, came across information that, that we thought led to um, someone else potentially being involved in the in the murder. And I think that was ended up well. I don't know if it, it it was borne out or not by subsequent evidence, but my feeling was that it you know the person who we thought may have been involved um, was you know that the idea that that person was involved was corroborated by stuff we learned throughout the trial or throughout the case. Let's take a quick break from the murder sheet to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day. Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. The business student turned convicted murderer now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died. The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Mysteries are at the heart of everything we do here on The Murder Sheet. But sometimes it's more fun to dive into a fictional caper. That's why we love the free-to-download hidden object game, June's Journey. This game is our daily escape from waiting around in line, getting stuck on hold, and just general doldrums. It is great to be able to just knock out a few levels here and there. You'll get to discover your inner sleuth and sharpen your observational skills by finding clues hidden in each level. Plus, It's like dropping straight into your own cozy mystery novel. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective with a nose for trouble. You get to tackle all kinds of bizarre crimes across a series of elegant and memorable locales. Also, you have a side hustle decorating your own island estate. I love that. I bought a swan pond. She really did. Download this game for a built-in work break. It's a great mental health boost that makes you feel accomplished before you get back to tackling whatever task you have at hand. And remember, when you support our advertisers, you're supporting our show. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. 
Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And now, back to the murder sheet. Unfortunately, Ian Barney is prohibited from revealing much information about the other person he believes may be implicated in the murders at Nadia. So I can't really discuss that information because it was tendered to us um, kind of under a protective order. So I'm really not able to get into that information. Whatever was, and I tried to not not chime in too much whenever it was being discussed just because I wanted to stay within the bounds. But whatever was kind of discussed on the record in court is really the extent of information I could share. And I think the extent of that information was that the state's attorney's office had received information from the U.S. attorney's office that suggested, uh, however you want to put it, suggested that Maurice Harris wasn't the person that committed the crime, that perhaps it was somebody else. Um, that's really probably the extent I can say about it. The information pointing to this alternate suspect at Nadia did not exist in isolation. There was corroboration. The um, other kind of pieces of evidence that I thought were important to the case were um, DNA recovered from a vehicle that we thought was connected to the crime. Um, and we thought it was connected based on some video footage that we saw. Um, and there had been various pieces of, I don't even know what you'd call it, but things like hair and samples that, that could potentially hold DNA in them. And the police were initially not going to test um, these items um, for whatever reason, but we, you know, we pushed the issue and they um, did test the items and uh, nothing in the car came back to um, Maurice, but it ended up being, which was important because it showed he, he wasn't involved, wasn't connected to this vehicle that we thought was potentially involved in the, um, in the quadruple homicide. But what ended up being very important about that was there was someone's DNA who was found in that who um, was later linked to the case through information that came through the U.S. Attorney's Office down the road, which we talked about last time. Um, And I think that's one reason why that information was um, even more important, even more powerful, even more exculpatory, because it it wasn't uh, uncorroborated. There was some corroboration in that um, the information was that, you know, a person, I'm not going to name the person, but a person was involved in this quadruple homicide, and lo and behold, this person's DNA was found in a, a vehicle. Um, that was that may have been connected to the to the murders. So that was a a really DNA was actually a really important piece of evidence, and that it excluded Maurice to to some degree, um, and it potentially uh, you know pointed towards somebody different who later got information may have actually been involved. So uh, that was that was huge for the case. I'm curious about the vehicle. Uh, what did you see on the video that suggested the vehicle was involved with the shooting? Um, well, it's kind of funny because <clears throat> I don't mean funny in the literal sense, but um, I think it, what clued me in first was a news story about a double homicide that happened later that day 
had described the vehicle that was involved. And in reviewing the discovery for our case, um, there was CTA bus footage. So then all CTA buses, they have video cameras. And on this, I was, you know, hours and hours of it. Watching the CTA bus footage, I saw um, a vehicle that um, matched the description of the vehicle in the news story. And uh, and I knew that the police had potentially suspected that the vehicle was involved in um, in both the quadruple homicide and the double homicide that happened later the same day. I was kind of aware of that generally. And, um, you know, and we just kind of put two and two together and we ended up asking for the, uh, all of the, um, police files on the double homicide that happened, which I think is still unsolved to this day, but the double homicide that happened later that same day, <clears throat> we were able to get those and there ended up being in that case, actually a police chase and the vehicle was caught on um, a red light camera. So they ended up getting uh, not only a photo of the vehicle, but um, a photo of the license plate. And they were able to track down the license plate uh, to a specific person. And then they were able to connect, connect the car or the vehicle through that person to another individual. And there were several dominoes that kind of went down um, subsequent to that, that, um, in my mind, connected the car to both murders, and we had the video that suggested it was part of the uh, quadruple homicide. So, um, yeah, it was really video, but it was putting video evidence together, the initial kind of information from the from a news story, some information from um, what I what um, what the police had mentioned about the car that they thought it was involved. Um, both murders so that you know, we just were able to kind of connect some dots and you know we never were able to definitively prove it was the same vehicle but it was <clears throat> it was um, there was certainly some circumstantial evidence that said that it was the same vehicle in both both crimes next week we'll be wrapping up the Nadia case you'll learn what happened to Maurice Harris and we'll share what we think his story says about the criminal justice system Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.